0: Gates Sloan, where we will be moving beyond research to generate awareness that leads to strategic action that will help us fight for anti-racism in America today. Scott, thank you so much for just being willing to sit down and have this conversation. On this podcast, we've been doing a racial reconciliation series. We've looked at what does it look like for an individual to start to pursue racial reconciliation. And then the next week we looked at what, is it, what are systemic issues that the church needs to know about and how they can begin to engage in those issues. And what I really look forward to talking with you about is why must the local church care about racial reconciliation? But before we dive into that part of the conversation, I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself and to share a little bit about your education, your ministry experience, and your family.
1: Yes, yeah, honor to be uh, on this podcast. I'm uh, Scott Venable, and uh, I'm the lead pastor at Northwood Church. It's in Keller, Texas, the North Fort Worth area um, of the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex here in Texas. And um, I've been the lead pastor for uh, uh, almost a year here. Uh, prior to my time here at Northwood, uh, I was a church planter, a uh, pastor of a very, uh, diverse multi-ethnic church in downtown Chicago on the near West side, um, and, uh, inner city Chicago there. And, uh, that was a very transformative experience for a lot of what we'll even be talking about today. Just, uh, pastoring that church, planting in that environment and, uh, seeing things that I saw in urban Chicago. Um, you know, before that I, I grew up in Texas, Texas born pastors kid, um, did a lot of youth and a lot of college ministry. Um, and, uh, and so I just recently finished my doctoral work on uh, multi-ethnic leadership and specifically looking at leadership within the church uh, and how church has become multi-ethnic and, and all of that. And so uh, my current context is uh, we're a very diverse church uh, Transitioned before I got here even. Um, and, and then we continue to move that, that go forward of being a multi-ethnic church um, and doing a lot of work uh, globally around the world uh, to promote uh, Jesus and his reconciliation. And so excited to be here and excited to have this conversation.
0: Well, thank you. I think your doctoral work makes you uh, an expert or someone who has <laughs> a lot more knowledge than most of us on does it look uh, like to pursue multi-ethnic uh, church membership. And so I'm excited to get to hear your perspective and what you've learned First, I do want to ask one question. How would you define multi-ethnic uh, within a church context?
1: Yeah, there's there's some different opinions on that. Um, Michael Emerson, who's a sociologist, wrote a groundbreaking book with a, another author um, called uh, Divided by Faith. And, the, and they're about to re-release, I think, the 20th anniversary uh, this year. And I encourage anyone to read that book. It's, it is a... Um, I think, a pivotal book to read in, in order to understand this conversation. Uh, but he, as a sociologist said, 20% basically of a group begins to tilt the culture of a group and begin, be, begin to tilt, tilt uh, um, redefining a group. And so most most pastors in this in this, in this this work would define a church as multi-ethnic if it has at least 20% diversity uh, or 20% of a non-majority uh, ethnicity. So, you know, it could be you know, that you're all quote unquote Asian or from Asian descent, but you may be Taiwanese, Chinese, uh, Mongolian, uh, you know, it could be all across the board, Vietnamese, uh, Korean. And that would be a very multi-ethnic expression because it's all sorts of different ethnicities. We often think in terms of like white or black Mm -hmm. or Hispanic and black, but even within our own uh, ethnicities or continents, we have so many different ethnicities and cultures within that in races. So, um, So yeah, 20% is kind of, and I think that's a low bar, to be honest Mm -hmm. with you. I'm always shocked when I, and I do that. And then when you look at it, we're basically evangelicals. We're only about 16 to 17% of our churches actually qualify, meet the minimum standard of being 20% diverse. So, you know, you look at 85% to 80, 80 to 85% of our churches in America, they're evangelical that claim they love Jesus and follow Jesus are mono-ethnic churches. So
0: I serve in the Denton Baptist Association and every year they have the churches fill out this survey. And one of the questions comes down to the makeup of your church membership. And I was talking with our executive director because he had noticed a lot of churches were saying they were multi-ethnic. And he said, what is that bar? Like, what does that look like for a church to be multi-ethnic? Because we don't want to put on a website that this church yeah. is when they're really not. And honestly, they got to the point where I believe they removed that um, as part of the information because it was confusing. Um, Mm -hmm. And based on conversations that I've had with a lot of local pastors is they desire that. And so they'll say that they are because that's where they hope to be. And,
1: yeah. Aspirational goal versus yes. an, an actual reality. Yeah.
0: Exactly. And so I think it's helpful just to have laid out that definition of multi-ethnic. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that. So as I said previous, the question I want us to talk about is why must the local church care about racial reconciliation? And so I just want to let you run with that question um, mm-hmm. and just kind of share with us what you've learned and what your thoughts are um, and how you're pursuing that within your church.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> the, the easy answer to this is because mm-hmm. Jesus cares about it. And if we're going to be a church and Jesus is the head of our church uh, and uh, and we're going to be his body and we can't decapitate and take mm-hmm. Jesus out of it and say we're going to be And a lot of churches want to do that at times because we don't want to do everything Jesus wants us to do. But he's the head. We're his body. We should be doing the things of Jesus. And it's, it's the heart of God. I mean, if you go back, just look at Scripture. And just go through the story of God through the throughout all of Scripture. You have you know, even the original promise to Abraham, the call of him to Sarah, his wife, was you'll be the father and mother of many nations. It was never about one people group. It was never about just the Israelites. It was a promise to him that God's heart and desire was for all nations or ethnos or ethnicities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the Greek word that we see. Um, and so it's people groups. It's all people groups, all people. That was the promise of God to to Abraham. That, and that shows God's heart. And, uh, you know, so we know the Old Testament story is the Israelites that were used. But even in the prophets, you see, and, and other times you see where other people were a part of this promise and this covenant, uh, you see prophesied by Isaiah, you see prophesied by Jeremiah, you see all these prophecies taking place, and so then Jesus, when the incarnate Christ comes, you see Him begin to say, "My kingdom is now at hand; it is here," and He began to push against the uh, religious uh, practices of the day that weren't lining up with His kingdom. And one of those practices was uh, racial oppression. Uh, if you look about, you know how He treated the Samaritans, for instance, who were racially oppressed at that time period. Um, he they were um, considered, you know, called mutts or half breeds and this derogatory language by the Israelis and uh, the Israelites. And so you see this Jesus show up and say, this is not right. This is not my kingdom. They're welcomed here. You see the Samaritan woman at the well saved and she goes and the whole village town is saved, uh, people in that time period. Uh, you see the elevation of not just races, but of women in leadership. You see the elevation of, uh, of people, groups of lepers, people that were outcast, the uh, people on the extreme of society that were just written off or canceled, if you will. And Jesus brings them all to the table. And he says, no, my kingdom is for all people. Uh, Even the story of him, you know, overturning the tables and, and driving out, what was that really about? If you look at it, you know, the way they were just, oppressing Gentiles with charge overcharging them for the sacrifices and things like that. But even the temple system was oppressive because Gentiles could only go so far. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is upset about that. And he turns over the tables and then he quotes Isaiah, which says my, my house should not be a house of robbers, but a prayer a house of prayer for all, all what all nations. Mm-hmm. Again, it's all ethnos, And if you look at the context of that Isaiah passage, that he quotes it. Uh, you see that Isaiah is prophesying about Gentile inclusion. Even in the Old Testament, and then Jesus is quoting that, so no, no doubt, Gentile inclusion was on the mind of Christ when he's overturning those tables and quoting that passage of Scripture. And, and so you're seeing this take place, and then you're seeing, um, you know, Paul show up on the scene and the church begins starting. You see Peter, uh, and you see that, you know, Paul has to correct Peter, and, and Peter's heart isn't right. God gives Peter visions to correct his heart. Two of them in fact to get him just to eat at a Gentile's house. Uh, they were the barbarians, uh, and you know, we see this language. Throughout, anytime we want to, anytime we want to justify the way we feel about somebody, we dehumanize them, yeah. and we come up with a term to to make them less than human. And so the Gentiles were barbarians. Uh, we've done it with Native Americans and called them savages. Uh, the Israelis do it with the Palestinians right now; they're all terrorists, or they're not. You know, we make them not worthy, and we do that as humans with other ethnic groups or other races in order to make us superior. Uh, in order also to justify us not treating them as human. And that's exactly what the Israel, Israel was doing with, uh, with the Gentiles, and so the non-Jews. And, and God was correcting Peter, and he goes East at Isaac Cornelius' house, and, and Peter is realizing that what God has declared all things clean, all people, lepers, everybody are clean in the name of Jesus, yeah. and all are grafted into this covenant, that he originally made with Abraham, that he is the father and Sarah is the mother of many nations. And that God is the one that is his house, that he is making this. And so you see the church begin to be multi-ethnic. And even on the day of Pentecost, that they're hearing, you know, the, the tongues of fire, they're hearing it all in their own languages. Mm-hmm. There's so many ethnicities represented in cultures that day that they all got saved. So the church, even in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, they were given this. And you see the Ethiopian eunuch. So you're just seeing this throughout all of scripture. And then, what's really most important is that you see one church. You don't see a Jewish expression of the church and a Gentile expression of the church. That would have been the easier route. That would have been the easier way to go. In fact, we wouldn't even need the book of Galatians if it wasn't for that. Just throw that out of the canon or mm-hmm. throw out the scriptures because the book of Galatians is dealing with the fact that the Jews were trying to put their preferences of how they worship on as bondage on top of the gentiles and paul's writings to correct that and saying no what we need to focus on what is really important what is the requirement to follow jesus those types of things and we need to put aside our religious preferences our preferences of how we prefer to worship in order for the unity of god uh, the unity of the church to become one and so you see them working hard for that and pushing for that and so when we look at the modern church in america how in line are we with that if you know, 80 to 85 percent of us are still monoethnic and the majority of that's separated based off of race, based off of ethnicity and based off of really worship preferences based off cultures and things like that. And so you you're seeing that we're pretty far from the heart of God in our current context. And then in order for that to take place, so what has to happen? Racial reconciliation. Yes. The same thing that happened with Peter and Cornelius, the same thing that happened between Peter and Paul. When Paul said, Peter, you're out of line with the gospel and he corrects him. Uh, the same thing that had to happen in, in the early church is what has to happen today. And it's racial reconciliation or, or and the uh, and we know that Jesus is the one that does that, and we're challenged with that as a church in America. And I think also we're falling pretty short of that as a church in America. Uh, we have a couple of responses we usually try to do. One of them is we try to hide our head in the sand and pretend it's not happening, and can we just uh, can we just move on and and check out of this? And and that's been the mo of a lot of evangelicals. The other one is to dig deep into our trenches and, and fight for our preferences or our racism or whatever, our racial bias, whatever we have, and to dismiss it and say, no, it's not true. It's not even happening. You're race baiting. It's all this stuff that that's not right. That's not accurate. Or the other one is to actually do the, do the work. And the dismissal one is where I fear fear that we're going as a culture on both sides of this, by the way, and we can talk about it a little bit later, but the cancel outrage culture Mm -hmm. is not a reconciling culture. And the church needs to be leading the way in this. And because we're either digging our hills in or we're hiding our head in the sand, we're not leading in this conversation where we actually have a third way of doing this. It's the biblical reconciling way. It's the Jesus way. But because we're absent from this conversation largely, we're not able to lead the conversation or lead the movement in the way that it should be going.
0: So you mentioned that third way requires us to do the work. And how would you talk to a pastor if this was the they're in the beginning saying we want to pursue this we want to pursue reconciliation what would it be that you would say this is how you start to do the work
1: yeah that's great first it's going to be a lot of prayer as a pastor because this is a this i'm not going to lie and say it's an easy transition i mean this is this is the divisive issue of you know of our culture and in churches. But if we're going to be honest, uh, I know last week, the uh, person you had on was talking about systemic mm-hmm. racism, but there's also systemic racism in the church yeah. that, that we in pastors, we can tear that down for sure and need to tear that down. That's what Jesus was trying to do with overturn the tables and other things to try to say we need to, and part of that is going to be, uh, you know, promoting uh, a diverse staff and a diverse environment and diverse leadership within the church. But I will caution a little bit. I think some of the tendency is just I need to go hire somebody who have a different ethnicity. Uh, but if you are not, if you haven't educated um, your church, if you haven't shepherded your church through this, if you haven't led your church through this prior to doing that, you, you may be bringing also someone into an unsafe space yeah. uh, for a person of color or a different ethnicity, especially coming from a white evangelical perspective. Um, so there needs to be a somewhat of a – shepherding and uh, education of the congregation to prepare them for this, um, to, to go through the Bible, just like I just did, and take some time to look at like, this is not political. This is, although this political, because I think it's the kingdom ethos, but it's not the politics of this world. It's not the politics of America. This is, this is the kingdom of God. And it is the, It's the heart of God. And we need to discover that. We need to repent where we've fallen short of that. And we need to get our church in a place to where we know this is the right thing to do. And then you can move forward with like, how do I, and maybe you already have uh, minorities or people of other ethnicities in your church and a minimal few, but they've been, you know, you've basically have uh, kept them from leadership possibly uh, in the church, or you've basically said you need to be in our white culture and, and our white train of thoughts. And we haven't taken your feelings and, and your worldview into consideration uh, with how we've presented stuff from stage with all the way down. Uh, Basically what we call accommodation uh, versus assimilation. We want people of color in our churches often, but we want them to assimilate into a white culture uh, versus accommodating their culture and creating a safe space for their culture to, 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 be prevalent and prominent and promoting it. And, and that's creating a safe space. So we got to promote a safe space. Uh, we got to promote people and leadership and then we got to be peacemakers. And that, that means we got to, you know, be building bridges. Uh, how for most pastors, the problem is is they're, they're going to try to do something without having a life that's reflecting it. And I don't know if you can have a multi-ethnic church if you don't have a multi-ethnic life. Yeah. And so how diverse is your dinner table? How diverse is your kid's life? Um, you know, they may play on a sports team that has multiple ethnicities on it, but how close are you to those people? And how often are those play days with people of other ethnicities and other color? And how diverse is your your, your conversations? Your your Who are you reading? Um, I mean, I just turned 40. I got... Uh, a master's degree, a bachelor's degree, in a doctorate degree, and the first time I read a non-white theologian, I realized was in my doctoral yeah. studies. I mean, that's crazy. So my my own exposure as a pastor to a different way of thinking or a theology that's been shaped from a certain time period, whereas you know Christianity was in the Middle East and Africa way before it hit Europe, and way before. And there's theologians and writings and books and all sorts of stuff of this theology uh, from the East and from Africa that. Um, you know, we should be in learning and informative, but we're not as pastors. So there's all a lot of steps we can take. Um, but I don't want anyone to feel like you can't take those steps. And the mm-hmm. point is you may not be able to go from zero all the way over here to maybe where, you know, we are and even further to where other churches are, but you can go from zero to one. Yeah. And, and that's the important thing. Start taking the right proper steps for your context to begin this reconciliation, um, and breaking down the systems in our churches that, um, you know, that aren't promoting, uh, uh, this place for, for people. So, um, and a lot of it is too just your own network of who you know, because your association or your denomination or your life may not be multi-ethnic. When you do have a staff hiring come up, you don't even know where to start or who to hire Mm -hmm. because all you know are white people, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) So how do I even have, and that's where you have to diversify your life and your connections and your network and, and realize that there's a whole world out there outside of white evangelicalism that um, that we, we're going to have to, as a majority culture, I think, take these steps to start making this right.
0: When I started to really wrestle with racial reconciliation, it was about five or six years ago. And part of it was just looking at the BSM and saying, we're not a good representation of our campus. We do not reflect mm. this diversity. And so just started reading and praying, saying, what can this be? And really got convicted that my life uh, did not model what I wanted our ministry to model. Mm -hmm. And around that exact same time, an opportunity to start to get involved with our women's basketball team happened. And that has progressed over the, the five, six years to where it went from me doing leadership training to now I get to do chaplaincy. And I'm considered literally part of the coaching staff now. And so That's awesome. through that time uh, where before I would say 98% of my time was spent with people that looked like me, now I can say sometimes depending on the week, 70% of my time is spent with people that don't look like me. And in those conversations and in those locker rooms and around those coaches, I just started to try to listen. And to see what is it that I don't know. And Mm -hmm. starting to recognize that my experience was so different than theirs. And then just wanting to understand. But then it took a long time before they would even trust me. I was just some white person that coach had brought in and they didn't even know what to do with me. And so once trust started to establish, um... And they were gracious. And I just said, I'd love to just learn about your life. And if I ask you a question that's offensive, please tell me. And they were so gracious to me. And then I started to realize what it was like to grow up non-white, what they experienced today, what it was Mm -hmm. even like to be a college student uh, who was non-white. And then I was trying to take what I was learning over here in the basketball arena and think through what does this look like for me to have this in mind for the BSM. And I think I really appreciated that you brought up that idea of assimilation and accommodation. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I was looking at the diversity that was representative in our ministry and we really had just asked them to assimilate. What would you say are just some examples of a way a church can accommodate diversity?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, because what we're really after is unity and not uniformity, and those are two different things. And so, when you look at assimilation versus accommodation, what you're trying to say is we want unity around and in the person of Jesus, uh, but we don't uniformity as far as uh, being what some would call colorblind. Um, You know, we're colorful. We're full of color, the people of God are, and the church of God is. And uh, we're all made in His image, which means, you know, when we're monoethnic or even monoethnic in our culture, we're really not experiencing, I don't think, the fullness of God. If all people are made in the image of God and all ethnicities are made in the image Mm -hmm. of God, then when we don't experience a certain culture of a certain ethnicity, we're missing out on part of who God is, because he placed himself in that ethnicity and that culture as part of his image. And so when we're asking everyone to conform, to be uniform around a certain majority culture, no matter which one it is, what you're looking at is you're missing out on part of who God is in the expression, the beauty of the kingdom of God. And so some practical examples I think are, you know, you let people be truly who they are. Mm-hmm. You're not asking them to change. And most people of color that are non-white uh, will will tell you that they have, you know, code language that they can Mm -hmm. go into. What they're really saying is they can start acting and sounding white (laughs) is what they're trying. And they know how to do that because they've been minority, uh, culture, uh, for so long and in those spaces and they know how to do that, but we don't want them to do that. We want to to break down that barrier and say, no, just be who you are, who God created you to be. Um, you know, so, a lot of it's going to be centered around some church traditions and preferences. And I think for a multi-ethnic church to work and go to unity, not uniformity, all of us come to the table and all of us also sacrifice something coming to the table because we can't all have it our way all the time. Right. And so, um, you know, so whether it's music, right. um, We don't think through the lens of how do different cultures um, prefer to worship and what is representative of their cultures. And so music is a huge one. Um, It's, it's a beautiful language. Music is. It's art. It's uh, you know sound, and, and you can pick up on things, and you can say this is part of this culture, and and so the diversity of your church is it represented on and uh, how you do music and worship is it represented on stage? Or do you have a bunch of people of color in your congregation, and the, the stage is all white? Yeah. And we're gonna keep doing Hillsong and Bethel and Elevation, and just say this is who we are. This is what we're gonna do. That's asking them now to assimilate. Versus accommodation would be let's invite you to the table. Mm-hmm. Now, who do you listen to, and yeah. and and what is what do you? How do you prefer to worship? What is a, you know, how would you play this song if you were to play this song? And, and let them have creative input, and and then say maybe maybe we could write something together, which is what's happened recently with like Maverick City Music for those in the church. If you're looking for a really modern multi-ethnic experience, you know it's basically. A, bunch of creatives came together and created a multi-ethnic sound it's got roots of gospel in it as well as modern you know worship music and it's just a beautiful thing you know another another thing is making sure that you always honor cultures and heritage so at northwood we do you know black history month is a big deal hispanic heritage month asian heritage month uh, and we allow cultures to express not just their history but their food and and education and we're so we're educating, but we're experiencing it as a, as a family of God and we're eating together and we're celebrating together and we're learning together. Um, and it's not just a token idea, This is, but it's led by people of color that this is important to us. And so we're allowing space for that and, and allows even the wrong word. We're encouraging space for that. We're creating space for that as, as all of us together. Um, so those are certain steps. Um and uh, practical things you can do. Um, Education, avoid of relationship is is a danger. And that's why the church can offer something here is because we can offer not just the education side of it. We can also also offer the relationship side of it. And, um, and so uh, preaching, I mean, do you have diversity in your teaching and, 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 and the pulpit and those types of things? And, and so you look at every level of the church, uh, small groups, are they monoethnic or are they multi ethnic Are people in relationships with one another? Your teachers, your deacons, your elders, whatever your church structure is, you just got to go through the whole thing. And if it's majority one culture, if it's all white at all these levels, then more than likely you're asking people to assimilate because voices aren't being heard. People aren't expressing themselves. And so we have to create safe spaces and opportunities for uh, cultures and ethnicities to be celebrated, honored, and allow those expressions to to be there.
0: How do you think a ministry leader can create a safe space so that those conversations can happen? How do they say my door is open um, so that someone who is not white would feel comfortable walking in?
1: Yeah, I think... You know, especially if you're a white pastor listening to this, and you're trying to create this safe space, I think it's important for us to what posture we take. Are we really wanting to learn and to listen, or are we wanting to defend our views already that we have our mind made up on? And there's no safety in that, and, and that's part of the problem with this conversation taking place primarily on social media right now, is because it's people already have their minds made up, and they're making a post to say what your mind already thinks. If anyone comes on there and says something opposite of that, you and everyone else that already agrees with you attacks that person. It happens on both sides. Mm-hmm. That's not a conservative problem. That's a very progressive problem as well. It doesn't matter. It, it's void of re- devoid of relationship. It's absent of relationship. And then it's also not a safe space because we're not coming with the posture of I'm really wanting to listen and learn. But we do that when we're in person more, more often than not, whether it's having coffee with somebody, but you're not coming at them. So my door is open saying, Mm -hmm. please let me hear your experience. Let me hear your story. Let me hear how you view this. How do you view this police shooting versus how I view this one? Mm -hmm. How do you view uh, the political climate and election cycle, which by the way, the white evangelical tie to conservatism also is something that has to die for a multi-ethnic church because it's not that you can't vote Republican if you want to do that. I don't care if you do that or not. But how you promote that from the platform is very important. And the white church got very tied to that during the culture wars of the past 25 years. Yeah. The problem with that is is not everyone is like that, especially given millennials and Generation Z. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, it's not the kingdom of God, and that's what we should be promoting. And when you do that, you're creating an unsafe space for people of color, whom majority of them do not vote conservative Republican, and now you're you're basically invalidating their political viewpoints mm-hmm. by Either. so it's not a safe space in their experience. That's right, and so that's why I mean at Northwood we 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 promote Jesus's way, His kingdom. It has an ethos, it has a politic, and it's this third way, and we will stand up against policies. Uh, and, but we don't tell people how they should vote because that's between them and God. And I empathize with anybody that can vote either way for whatever reason they have, as long as we'll also stand together and call out all the injustices and all the things that go against the kingdom of God on all sides. So that's a part of creating that safe space. So I think we just have to be a posture of listening, uh, humble and and willing to learn and then willing to implement what we do learn and promoting that safe space that other people then see that we're legitimately saying this is not just uh, an aspirational thing, but it's actually happening. And I think that's where we got to move from. I don't think there's very many pastors anymore. I know there's some, but not very many that say, this. no, we, we shouldn't be multi-ethnic. I think mm-hmm. we're starting to see the trend turn. Uh, we had the early years, the stages, and now we've had early adopters. I think we're moving into more of a mainstream now, if you're looking at the bell curve. I think we're moving in more to a mainstream area and time period, but that's going to take a great deal amount of leadership and humility and getting and getting from aspirational to actuality. And then we're going to see, I think, possibly an incredible movement. And by the way, for those of you also white pastors, the, so, the society tells us, the stats show us that by 2040. And I actually predict it's going to be earlier. I think it's going to be 2035 or 34. Uh, whites, for the first time in this country, will be the, the minority culture and minority ethnicity. So whether you want to deal with this now is up to you. But you will not have an all white church by 20 or you'll be an all white church of 80 people and it will be dying, you know, but if you want to get on the forefront, you already should have been a part of this, but we should be moving forward in this very quickly, um, you know, in order to prepare for even that. And that's going to have its own set of implications and and um, effects when that actually takes place in our culture, in our country.
0: Especially in Texas, because I think we're even further down in that process. And any research that you look at specifically talking about Generation Z, they're the largest demographic we've ever seen, almost 70 Mm -hmm. million, and almost 50% of them are non-white. And so if we're looking at engaging this next generation, this has to be forefront in what we're focusing on, and it has to be a priority, or else we're going to continue to see a a decline in young people wanting to be a part of the local church. Yeah.
1: And that—that's actually a separate issue, or not a separate issue. It's same side of the of different side of the same coin. But how do we pass on the story of God to the next generation? Has mm-hmm. been the issue with the people of God since the beginning of time. You see it in the Old Testament when they didn't do their job and they and they didn't pass on the next generation was wandering in the wilderness. Right? It didn't matter. And this is the chance for us to pass down the story of God's. Faithfulness and his story to the next generation, but we can't pass down a mono-ethnic story. Yeah. It's not going to be handed down that way. They're they're going to refuse that gospel. They're going to refuse that message. So we can make it about us and and keep our church the way we want to keep it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And and that'd be fine. But more than likely, it's going to die with your generation. You're going to miss out on Generation Z. To your point, yeah. um, because their lives are multi-ethnic. They're they're coming up. Think about it through social media and seeing this, they, they know wrong is wrong. Mm-hmm. They don't have any ties to Confederate statues and monuments. They don't even understand. They, that's so foreign to them, why you would even be opposed to that. Yeah, And, and so all these things that are happening right now. So to see the church standing against those things coming down to them, is like, well, there's no way Jesus, like that's their their mindset and worldview. Yeah. So we're not even, we're, we're going to create a huge gap. If you thought the millennial gap was huge, mm-hmm. the generation gap is going to be even bigger um, if we, as you know, I mean, I'm 40, I can go millennial origin next, depending on who's counting, but 40 and above, if we don't take this serious and get ready to pass this down, then we're going to miss an entire couple of generations.
0: Yeah, because to them, it's not just this other demographic. To them, it's their friend. Mm, and I that's think right. We have to be it's able their to spouses. Exactly
1: like that. the multi ethnic families are coming. I mean, it's, uh, it's their it's everything to them. It's their tribe.
0: Yeah. And I th- that's helped me just even as I look out on our campus to see that it continues to grow in diversity in all of those uh, aspects. And that's exciting to me because I think this next generation, specifically if we equip some leaders that can step into this space, could be part of those Christian leaders that are going to help change the trajectory of the church. That's right. And yeah. that excites me getting to do what I do. Um, mm mm-hmm. And so you've already shared a bunch of really practical things that ministry leaders can do to pursue uh, better education, uh, humility, and racial reconciliation. Are there any other practical ways that a church leader can pursue diversity and unity that you would want to suggest?
1: Yeah, I think another one that is key if you're a pastor leader is— do you have other pastor leaders that are different ethnicities you that you are in a relationship with that are speaking into your life? Not, not one that you're speaking into, but one that's speaking into you, because um, that's going to be very important to help navigate this and, and to help understand that um, what's happening around you and to give you a different worldview and lens. And it's very important for pastors to have that. Obviously, who are you reading? Who are you studying? Those types of things are practical next steps to, to open up your worldview. Um, I think a I think I think a deep dive into the theology of the multi ethnic church is going to be important. And there's some great books out there. Uh, I mean, one of the the older ones, but it's the Building a Healthy Multi Ethnic Church by Mark DeMoss. He lays out seven kind of signs of a healthy, it's, it's a great book to read. There's been so many written. I mean, this space, if you look at it compared to even 10 years ago, uh, the space of what's being written on Russian racial, racial reconciliation, you have everyone from Eric Mason, mm-hmm. you got reformed guys like him with the woke church all the way to, you know, people, I mean, you got Terry and you got all across the board. So whatever your theological uh, position is, you can find someone like you. That's still speaking on this subject. It's not bound by that. So it's a, the, Broaden your horizons on who you're reading. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I would say here's the, here's the other thing I think that we've kind of bought into as pastor leaders. That we, it's a very practical step that we need to take. Is we can't buy into this, um, if I disagree with 5% of what you say, then ninety the other 95%, I'm going to write it off. Yeah. That's what our culture is doing. And so you may find someone you disagree with on their view of women in the church, but you don't then write off their entire theology because that one disagreement, right? But we've done that in our cult. We are cancel outrage culture. And and we can't do that and be a, you can't alienate anyone and be a bridge builder. And uh, you're going to, we have to humanize everyone and bring everyone to the table, um, even those we disagree with and uh, and, and still learn the truth from them that, that is still true that they are saying. Uh, if they are saying any truth. And so we're going to have to get past that and not be so tribalized and polarized. If you're only, because you may be thinking, well, then I can't read that person because that's going to, you know, and all, the, all the, the, the words out there, neo-Marxism to critical race theory, to all these things. Mm-hmm. And even if those things were true about some of these authors or some of these people, there's still a lot of truth that they're speaking, yeah. that we can't just, dismiss and throw it out there, even if you have a problem with those things, right? Um, I mean, I've even been called a Marxist before. I don't, I've, <laughs> I have you know, studied Marxism enough to even know what, <laughs> what they're accusing me of. I'm yeah. teasing. I do. But that to say that it's, we can't be even worried about that. And then the other thing too is a practical step is prepare your soul for the cost. Yeah. And uh, with every courageous step, you will lose people but what you gain in the kingdom of God and then what you'll gain in people is going to be, I mean, I wish I to tell you that Northwood as a church, we didn't pay a price for it, the steps we've taken, but you know, we're probably half the size we were 10 years ago. Um, but uh, we were 95% white and now we're only about 60 to 62% white. So what yeah. we gained and um, who we are as a church, setting ourselves to the, our current culture and to generation Z and millennials or a young, young church, with um, young families, I mean, we we are a brand new church, really, and, and it's worth all the costs in the world, but you do have to count that cost, and are you willing to take those steps? Um, you know, Do you think speaking out of Facebook is going to get you, those same people are in your church, so they're going to leave you. <laughs> yeah. If they're going to dislike your comment or, or go at you on Facebook, they'll probably leave your church too, but that's okay. Uh, you have to be willing to to be like that. Jesus was okay with that, so we should be too. You know, he said a lot of hard truths and a lot of people turned their head, John chapter six and walked away and said, this is who can follow this teaching is too hard. Well, who's going to follow this teaching of biblical reconciliation, multi-ethnic church? And not everyone's going to be able to come with us and we're going to be OK with that. But it's uh, God's going to be very happy with that and be very happy with this church doing that. And so I think educating yourself, relational. So education is a piece, mm-hmm. practical, relational is a piece. Um, and then, uh, preparing your yeah. soul and, and anchored in Jesus, your is found in him has to be it as a leader, uh, because you're, if you're gonna do the third way of Jesus, barely anyone's ever going to be happy with you because mm-hmm. they want to put Jesus into their tribal box, Yeah but you're doing this way. You're not going to be, listen, one of the greatest stories on this actually is Zacchaeus and, you know, people that are. You know, a little bit more liberal and moderate, like the Zacchaeus part, where he restores, you know, four times the fold of what he had stolen from people, um, back to them. A, a word for that, in our a very politically charged word, is reparations. Yeah. But that's basically what happened. I call it biblical justice or biblical mm-hmm. restoration. But what he did was, is he took what he had stolen and then restored even more. Because why? Well, because he had a transformed heart in Christ. But if you look at the first part of the story, this is what's really important, is Jesus still invited the oppressor to wow. his table. He said, I'm going to your house today. He didn't say you're a racist. You know, He didn't say you're, an, you're a tax collector. You're not, you know, go educate yourself first. Go read that. Go read all this stuff. Get out of here. You're not worthy of my presence. He said, no, I'm coming to your house today, and I'm going to sit at your table. And that coming to the table with the oppressor changed his life and then he brought even more justice to the oppressed by even restoring more and if we don't have that entire process we don't have biblical reconciliation and it's third way of Jesus and so as a leader a lot of people will get mad at you for not canceling somebody out because of something they said or did but Jesus never did that they were never mm-hmm. too far gone and then if but the fact that you're opening it up to people that have different thinnesses the people that are like, no, what are you doing? You're going to get it from both sides. And so as a leader, you really got to be anchored in Jesus, your is found in Him, and yeah. that you know with confidence you're doing things His way. And that's why it helps to have other pastors and other diverse leaders around to help you that are further along in the process that can help you move from a zero to a one, yeah. a one to a two. You know, I got people in my life that, or African-American Latino that, that are helping me go from, you know, a six to a seven or wherever mm-hmm. I'm at, you know, we need people further along than us to help us move along. And, uh, so yeah, those are some practical things.
0: I, I think it's super helpful just to be able to say, okay, here's where we are and here are just some little things that we can start already to, mm-hmm. to pursue. When I really first started wrestling with this, um, As the director, I can decide what we do in staff meeting. And so I started handing out books. And I was like, we're going to be reading these things. And at that point, the staff that I had was predominantly white. We had one uh, who was Latino. And as we were reading these books, one of which that was really helpful, there was some uh, liberation theology that was coming up. And I saw my staff almost like, I don't want to read this. I don't, this is wrong. And so even in those moments of being able to say, okay, you may not agree with this part of the theology or this part of this book, but let's even take it a step further and say, why do you think liberation theology exists? And, Um, you know, even being able to step outside of my white experience to be able to think they've had to be liberated. (laughs) What does this look like? Like, how can we look at it and say to them, Jesus is their liberator in a different way. Um, And I think as I was even wrestling through reading authors that I had never read before that were saying things in ways I'd never heard it before, um, it forced me to wrestle with some of those uh, issues and terminology and even say, before I write this off, where did it come from? And Mm. what is that understanding? It's the same thing as when we read the Bible. We don't want to just put it into my context. Like I want to understand like what was happening there. And um, from that perspective, liberation theology didn't seem to me as something that I just needed to push out the door. Instead it was, I'm getting to understand the pain and the wounds that have been experienced by someone other than me. And so I really, I appreciate just you even saying like, Just because there's 5% you might not like, that doesn't mean we disregard the 95. Yeah. And for me, even if I'm reading something and I'm like, I don't know if I agree with this, I still want to read it to get the the perspective and to learn about someone else who's lived a life so different than mine. Yeah. And so... I, I appreciate your helpful perspective and yeah. uh, leadership and and even the practical steps that you've offered. Um, so before we wrap up, I just want to give you one more chance. Is there anything that you're like, Oh, I wish I would have said that. Or here's one more thing she didn't ask me about Yeah, that you would want to make sure would, you say.
1: Yeah. I would just say there a, a word of caution for a white uh, leader is the issue of what you just said and what we've been talking about with unity and uniformity, accommodation assimilation, if we're not careful, what we can do is actually further systemic racism in the church as white leaders by trying to be multi-ethnic without uh, allowing and creating safe spaces in different cultures. Um you know, and that's a critique from people of color that have been a part of multi-ethnic churches. And um, that's why it's really important. We go to another level with that because do the hard work is what I guess I'm really saying mm-hmm. of, and do the hard work of submitting to people of color in your life and, and, and allowing cultures to express themselves. Cause if not, I mean, there's a reason there was a black church created in the first place, right? Yeah. Because of, of white, uh, you know, racism and what we did to, to slavery and, you know, we made the slaves come to church and then eventually we didn't, you know, they had to sit in a certain setting and then eventually they were gone. They had their own churches and their own. So it can look like colonialism in a way if we're trying to get black people or brown people or Asians back into our churches, but to become white. Yeah. That, that's a form of colonialism that's very dangerous. So it's just a word of caution that I would encourage you to do this work, but I would encourage you to do the hard work and, and do the work that is required to actually make this the beautiful expression of God's church and and to put that work in to make sure that you're, you're doing it the right way and doing it God's way. And then we'll see, you know, there's, I just, I have a lot of hope and uh, I really believe this is, could be our greatest apologetic um, to an unbelieving world that can't figure this issue out. But if the church was able to beautifully display the unity in Christ without you know, the uniformity, but allowing the expressions of cultures and in this, and this show what the Jewish and Gentile church was able to show in the early, in the early church, if we we're able to show that could be our greatest apologetic during an unbelieving mm-hmm. time where more and more people are leaving the church and, uh, I, I have a lot of hope for it. So yeah. that's it.
0: That, that gives a lot of hope and, uh, that's encouraging to me and I really appreciate just your time and your perspective and, um, I appreciate your church. Um, I've read "Globalization" uh, by uh, yeah, uh, our founding pastor yeah, he, Bob. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Then, you know, I've checked out your church online, and uh, my husband and I want to come and visit uh, just just to get to experience that. Um, yeah. And so you're welcome I, many times. I appreciate that. Um, but thank you. It's been fun to get to watch your ministry from when you were here in Denton, off to Chicago, and then back to Texas, just from afar, yeah. um, and just to see how the Lord has used you and grown you, and now is putting you in a position that I think, um, for such a time as this, I mean, we look at what's happening in our world, as ministry leaders, we have to step into this space. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have an That's option, right. especially with what is going on around us today. Um, yeah. And so, thank you for doing the hard work and for leading out in the DFW area. I just appreciate how you are submitting to uh, the Lord's call here to pursue reconciliation. So, thank you for your time and for all that you shared. I really appreciate you.
1: Yeah, smile to be a part. Thanks.
0: If you would like to continue this conversation, you can contact me at stephaniegatessloan.com. The music was created by my talented friend, Vince Romanelli. Thanks for listening.